Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and defining happiness and success. Bit of a change from the regular format uh, that we have uh, usually on Beyond Busy this week because I am just talking to me, <laughs> I talking to an audience. Uh, so this is uh, I'm on I'm on kind of uh, holiday right now in Goa as this goes out, and uh, or certainly as I record this uh, little thing, I'm just about to take the trip. So uh, I thought what I'd do is put out the audio of an event that I did recently for Brighton's Action for Happiness group. Uh, so it's about sort of 40, 50 people. Uh, we're in the latest music bar in Brighton and I was asked to speak on the topic of Beyond Busy and how happiness relates to work-life balance and productivity, something obviously I'm very passionate about with basically it being the central kind of focus of this whole podcast and uh, the emerging kind of book and project stuff that I'm doing around this as well. So uh, really... Um, hope you're going to enjoy this one. What I'd done is I'd challenged myself to speak with no slides, okay? This is a rarity for me. I am usually someone who loves the sort of the crux of the structure. I have a really bad memory. My my memory is really terrible. So it really helps me to have the structure of slides to kind of give me a sense of where I'm going next and, and always to be able to see what I'm doing. If you've ever booked me for a keynote or ever sort of worked with me on that kind of stuff, what you'll know is uh, my only diva-ish thing is I always want my own laptop as the monitor so that I can see the next slide. And that's purely just because my memory is so terrible. Uh, and so what I did with this one, I was like, right, I'm going to just challenge myself. It's um, it's a shorter thing than I do normally. It was a thing I was just doing as a volunteer. It wasn't a paid thing. And I just thought, right, I'm going to use this as a slight opportunity to experiment. It's a topic I know pretty well and stuff I've got a lot to say on. So I kind of thought, what could possibly go wrong if I sort of challenge myself outside of my comfort zone to speak basically with no notes? I had like one sheet of a couple of mind mapped things, but I spoke really with no notes here and with no PowerPoint. So um, just for the speakers amongst you and people for whom uh, that bit of information is interesting, then uh, uh, that's what's going on here. And uh, this is split into like kind of two sections. So there's a section where I'm talking more broadly on productivity first uh, and then we get into later some of the stuff around work-life balance and happiness and uh, a bit of Q&A as well so hope you're going to enjoy this one this is me talking to Action for Happiness uh, early in 2018 uh, here in Brighton in the UK let's get on with it let's go it's lovely to be here. It's my first Action for Happiness event as well, which is um, which is cool because I've been a fan of Action for Happiness uh, for quite a while. Um, so it's really good to be here at one of the events. I'm going to start with um, the three elephants in the room. Uh, so the first one is like, who's the bald guy and what does he know about being busy or productivity? So I'm going to tell my story in a few minutes. Uh, someone pointing at the, the bald guy that seems more bald than me. I like that. Um, so uh, so I'm, going to talk, I'm going to tell my story in a few minutes. Uh, the other two elements in the room. So I was thinking, when I was uh, working out what I was going to say uh, this evening, uh, so if you read the little blurb that get, went along with the event, uh, the word productivity and productive comes up quite a lot. Uh, my company is called Think Productive. And uh, this is an event organised by Action for Happiness. And what kept coming up in my head was the Radiohead thing that goes, Fear, happier, more productive. People know that, right? Like it's from OK Computer. And uh, I think there's a danger with uh, these kind of events or uh, you know, books on this kind of topic that it's essentially about how to 
create the best productive drones to make shareholders richer. And I'm not interested in that at all. So if anyone thought that was going to be in any way part of this evening, then I want to just kind of kill that elephant in the room straight away. Um, and then the final, um, I guess, uh, elephant in the room is just around the whole concept of uh, time management and personal development and how often I think with these kind of topics, uh, the style, because of who writes a lot of the content, uh, tends to be this kind of guru mentality of like, yeah, I'm really great. And if you just get a little bit better at what you do, then you'll be okay too, right? And it's like this whole sort of, I'm perfect, try and be more like me. Um, and that really turns me off uh, when it comes to personal development and productivity. So uh, I'm going to give you the anti-guru, very human um, sort of perspective on productivity. I think, to be honest, the reason, so I've written this book called How to Be a Productivity Ninja, um, which has been a bestseller in the UK and in a few other countries. And I think the reason that it hit a nervous because it wasn't written like those guru books. Like it's a very uh, sort of deep down and dirty, like it's very practical, but also uh, acknowledges the fact that we are all human and we all screw a lot of this stuff up regularly and that's okay. And if we don't try and aim to be perfect, then we'll get somewhere better than trying to, trying to be perfect and kind of beat ourselves up. Um, so I thought what I'd do is I'm going to talk... Um, more about productivity uh, at the beginning and then I'm going to move on and talk more about work-life balance and my whole project around uh, Beyond Busy in the kind of later part of this. So does that sound like a good uh, plan? So we'll do a bit of productivity stuff uh, and then we'll, you know, because it's New Year, New You, right? Like January, all good. And then we'll get into a bit more kind of the work-life balance and how I think this links to actual happiness. And a lot of the, really the, the kind of similarities and crossovers between my organization, Think Productive, and what Action for Happiness is doing. Um, so that's the plan. Okay. Um, I, thought I'd, it, I thought I'd kind of um, structure this by uh, talking about three Ps. So three Ps for productivity. Um, one is what you need to do about your projects. Uh, one is what to do about your phone. And one is what to do about procrastination. Uh, before I talk about those, I'm just going to tell you very quickly how I got into this and my story around productivity. So, um, back in 2006, I think it was, um, I found myself running a charity uh, called Student Volunteering England. So, a very small but influential national charity. Um, I was 26 years old when I became chief executive of this national charity, which was far too young to be the chief executive of anything. Um, and also, uh, you know, sort of at, at the time, it just was just one of those things. Like I was running the biggest student volunteering group in Birmingham, um, and then the national charity needed a CEO, and apparently I was the best person who applied. So I found myself in this position uh, where it was a time when the government was giving out a lot of money around promoting youth volunteering, and um, the charity sector was in you know really good shape, and uh, you know there was money in government and stuff. Remember those days, halcyon days. Um, and so I found myself, you know, going to breakfast meetings with ministers and like really helping them to formulate policy and like making decisions about really huge uh, pots of cash that the government were giving out and all this kind of stuff. And it was really, it was an amazing and wonderful experience. Uh, and what I thought I was going to do was go freelance uh, for a little while after that and just do some freelance project management and fundraising and various other things. Uh, and then I was going to continue my career in the charity sector and become probably a senior manager of a big charity and then sort of end up running Oxfam in 50 years' time or something like that. Um, and it's sort of, my path took a bit of a different turn because what happened was I did go freelance and I found myself sat one day at my desk having loads of ideas 
and looking around the room and then realizing it was my bedroom and there was no other desks and no other people. Um, and it was, a, it was a really difficult transition because I'd been running this charity. I had an amazing team of people around me and I could sit at my desk and have ideas and stuff would just magically happen. People would take up these ideas and start working on things. Um, and then I no longer had that. I was, I was freelance, I was on my own. I was the, the chief executive and the T-boy of my own operation. Um, and that was just a really tough transition. It made me realize that I wasn't actually very good at productivity myself. I really struggled with it. And in particular, I wasn't very good at a whole bunch of skills around what you might label being a completer finisher, right? So being able to follow things through, having an eye for detail, uh, all these things were things that I hadn't any idea at all that I struggled with. And, and then suddenly when I was on my own, I really realized that I was, I was struggling with this stuff. Um, so I just got really obsessed with the whole notion of productivity and the whole notion of how can we uh, change the relationship that we have with our stuff, with our to-do list, with the information around our work, in such a way that it allows us to uh, change from a state of being in stress and into a state of having playful, productive momentum. So finding work fun, finding the stuff that you're doing really engaging and interesting because you've got clarity around the stuff that you do. And I started to then experience this myself. I, um, I read a couple of books that really changed my life. So... Uh, there's a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Um, I'm sure some of you have come across that. A few people nodding. Good. Uh, so I like that book. Um, and some of the stuff in there really crystallized how to work with other people and some of the kind of uh, stuff around being values-driven um, really kind of uh, spoke to me as something that was, you know, a lot of it is quite common sense, but when you see it really crystallized, it's like, wow, that's really cool. Uh, the other book was David Allen's book, Getting Things Done. I know come across Getting Things Done. So this is probably less well-known, um, but what David Allen really crystallized was uh, the relationship between projects and actions. So I'm going to get on and talk a little bit about, um, uh, about how to manage projects in a few moments. But what it allowed me to do was to go, so in some of the freelance work that I was doing, I was, I was kind of going to people's desks. And as well as doing all the you know, charity stuff that I was doing with people, um, I started to sort of fall into teaching this productivity stuff because I had this huge transformation in my own productivity and my own style of work. Uh, through reading these books and kind of developing my own systems around it. And I kind of fell into teaching other people. I remember one particular experience where uh, there was a, a woman who, uh, she got her last two emails in her inbox. I was uh, coaching her on this thing called Inbox Zero, where you process all your emails and you have a lovely white space on the screen. Uh, and uh, if you want to know how to get your inbox to zero, I'll tell you a little bit later. It's all in the book, which is over there. Uh, but, uh, so I got her, her down to the last two emails. The second to last email she was tensing up like this, right? Like her shoulders were up here. You could see there was just like stress on her face. And I was just asking her some, some kind of basic coaching questions. And I said, uh, okay, so what's this thing? And she said, well, the second to last email, I have just realized by reading this email that it was a thing I was supposed to have done three months ago and I haven't done it. And it's like, ah, you know, she was just feeling this kind of tension. So I asked her these coaching questions. I said, right, what should we do? And we came up with the idea of let's email the person who she was supposed to do this thing for and just say, do you still need this? I'm really sorry. And just, you know, own up and just do the decent thing. So she did. And the person emailed back like two minutes later saying, guess what? I don't need this anymore. And I just saw her body language just do this. Like, <sighs> and in my mind at that moment, a little light bulb went off and it was like, wow, like just the relationship that we have with our stuff and the relationship we have with our own narratives, I think is so huge. And it was at that moment that it was like, right, if I can do this, like on at scale to loads and loads of people, then this this is a business. This is something that people really need. So that really was the birth of uh, my company, Think Productive. There's a couple of the 
Picked up the team here tonight, Elena and Caitlin. Thank you, you know, just at the front. You know, it's fine. Uh, so, um, so Think Productive, uh, we, we started in 2009. Uh, we have a number of different offices around the world. Uh, we turn over about a million and a half a year, which on the one hand, I, it blows my mind that there's this huge thing developing and activity developing out of just this little idea that I had and putting stuff together. And on the other hand, it makes me think, man, there's so much more to do. We can grow so much more. So um, that's Think Productive, uh, my business, which uh, started in 2009. And since then, I've really been... Uh, evangelizing on, on this whole topic and trying to get people to uh, experience this sense of playful, productive momentum, kind of moving away from stress and really loving the work that they do. Uh, and the book really came out of that. The book actually originally, to be completely honest, was I thought I would write down all the stuff I'd figured out from the first two or three years of coaching people in it um, as a way of having a business card to kind of hold up and wave and go, hey, like, here's my book. Uh, and the book did really well. So it's like, oh, actually, now I'm an author. Like, that's, that's my thing now. Uh, so I've written a couple of other books since, and then there's some more books which I'll tell you about later. So that's like a little story of how I got into productivity. So very accidental, um, but really driven by my own experiences of being really terrible at it and then really uh, transitioning into being really good at it and being like, oh, okay, if I can do this, like anybody else can do this. Um, so three Ps. I'm going to start with um, projects. Um, the David Allen book, uh, Getting Things Done, one of the things that um, really crystallized in that book was the relationship between projects and what he calls next actions. So really working out with anything that you want to do, what's the next thing that you need to start? Like what's the, what's the most physical thing that you can uh, start to uh, define and kind of picture in your brain? And often what happens with all of this stuff is uh, most of the stuff that we're working on kind of lives in our brains, lives in our heads. And what happens is once, that's, once you've got you know, 20, 30, 50 of those things all kind of swirling around in your head... It becomes very confusing and it becomes very easy to miss things and it becomes very anxiety uh, inducing because you start to think, I wonder if there's something really important here that's just kind of at the back of my head. Uh, And one of the things that he talks about is if you start to define um, the stuff that's on your to-do list in terms of not just the actions but also the projects, it allows you to gear around that. What's the next action you need to do on each of these things Um, and kind of ask yourself that really critical question to move stuff forward. Um, what it really started to um, uh, sort of spark in my mind was the idea that time management is just completely useless, right? So who's read some kind of time management book or been on a time management course? I suppose you uh, and you're still here. Is everything perfect in your lives now? Is it all solved? So it's better. But I, you know, I think for me, a big issue is that a lot of the, uh, the wisest literature about time management was written kind of in the 70s and 80s in an age where information overload looked like three pieces of A4 paper in a pigeonhole at 9am, and that was information overload back then. Uh, so, you know, in terms of how we manage our time, it's much more important these days how we manage our attention. Um, it's a much more important question to start asking yourself is, how am I managing my attention? Much more than how am I managing my time? Um, so in terms of how you uh, define and play with this idea of projects and actions, most people's to-do lists are broken because they're a mix of things that you want to do, uh, there are also a mix of things that are nagging you. For example, if it's somebody's birthday and you write down, oh, mum's birthday, that's not an action. That's like I'm worried about my mum and I want to make sure that I'm still in her good books at the end of the week. So that's a nag, right? That's not an action. Um, and also projects, you know, so we write down things like organised conference. It's like, yeah, that's like a 50 million actions that we need to do, but we just kind of write it down. So it becomes really difficult, you know, when you've got a to-do list that is that underformed 
and where there's that much thinking still needs to be done, it becomes really difficult to pick that up at nine o'clock in the morning and go, right, this is the first thing, this is the most important thing that I need to do. Um, so how we manage projects and actions, I think um, everybody needs to have a much greater sense of what your projects list is as much as you have a sense of what your to-do list is. And I would go slightly further than that and say, uh, for me, it's about having kind of like four or five um, different structures that will really help you to get clarity. Uh, and by getting clarity, allow you to really make better choices with what you're going to spend your time on and most importantly, spend your attention on. Um, so for me, that's about having a really good master actions list, having a complete list of anything that I can possibly work on and categorizing that based on where you need to be to do stuff. So what's the stuff you can do in the office? What are you going to do at home? What's the stuff you need to do when you're out and about? Uh, it's amazing when you have all your little um, errands on there, like uh, stuff you need to buy from WX Smiths and then stuff you need to buy from Boots. And it turns out they're right next to each other. Cool. You know, so having that stuff on the list is that kind of way with you. And so having a master actions list, um, having a project list, as I talked about, for me, anything that's more than two or three, uh, you know, two or three actions, just make it a project. Um, so you probably have way more projects if you take that definition than you think. And I think that's a really good way of approaching this because then you start to get clarity on each and every one of those. Um, and also a couple of other lists that most people probably don't have instinctively. Um, one of them is called the waiting for list. Um, have a list. Anyone got people in their lives who, so you're really productive, but then they're not. Anyone got people like that in their lives? Um, so the one right now that's on my waiting for list, just to give you an example, is I've sent off all the information uh, a good couple of weeks ago, thank you very much, uh, to the tax people for the uh, end of year tax return that comes up at the end of January. Uh, so I'm like, well, in the clear with that, I'm like feeling pretty smug about it, but then my accountant has not yet filed it, and so on the waiting for list, it's like, have they filed the taxes? And so at a certain point, that comes back as an action for me of like, okay, now I need to chase this. It's getting towards the end of the year. So having a waiting list for the things that you're tracking, but other people need to do them, and being able to keep that away from your project list and away from your, your actions list so you don't see it all the time, but you do need to track it and care about it. So waiting for this. Um, the final one is having a good ideas park. Anyone ever have really good ideas and they go straight on the to-do list? And then it's like, oh, they're mixed in with all the other stuff that's a bigger priority. Uh, and for me, often what will happen is I'll have a really good idea you know, on a Monday, and by Friday, it's a really bad idea. Uh, but, you know, if you just write it on the to-do list, how many times are you going to come back and distract yourself with that or even start working on it when it's a bad idea? So having a place to almost kind of, you know, park those things and come back to regularly and say, is this a good idea? Is this something that I really want to work on? Uh, and keeping that separate from a project that you're committed to or an action that you're working on that day. Um, and what probably some of you are thinking right now as I talk about these kind of three or four different lists to have is like, Graham, that's a lot of lists. Like, that's a lot of being organized. And uh, that's like a lot more thinking than I would generally want to do with my stuff before I sit down and type emails first thing in the morning. Uh, and I totally get that. Uh, and I was definitely like that when I first started experimenting with this stuff. Um, but what I'd say in response to that is um, Henry Ford has this amazing quote, which is, thinking is the hardest work there is, which is the probable reason so few engage in it. <laughs> And what I'd say is that actually thinking is your work. Thinking is not an added extra. Thinking is not a luxury. Um, getting space for quality thinking and finding the time to uh, really uh, make great decisions about what you're going to prioritize and having a really steely focus on the things that you're not going to do, like that is your work. And that is the thing that ultimately is going to uh, define your success in whatever you're doing. And um, so really getting... Uh, clear on what you're going to say no to, getting clear on what everything needs, 
uh, getting clear on how much time you're going to spend on stuff. That comes from just having that little bit more thought than just writing a to-do list and hoping for the best. Uh, and I think, you know, if you've ever been in that stage of uh, having a to-do list and getting to the end of the day and re- realizing the to-do list is the same length or even a bit longer than it was at the start of the day and feeling really uh, dejected by that, uh, know that if you do it the way I just talked about, you don't get that feeling. Uh, it's much more about how you manage the flow of information uh, and it's a much more uh, intuitive and also uh, you know, much clearer uh, way of dealing with all of that different stuff. Um, so that's just a little bit about projects and actions. And I think um, the reason I talk about projects and actions in that way is because all of this really is about our relationship with information, um, the relationship that we have uh, in terms of how that then feeds our own narratives, how that feeds fear, how that feeds guilt. Um, all of this is psychology. Um, often when I'm, uh, you know, like talking about productivity, one of the first questions that comes up is, what app do I need to download? I always say that's just not the place to start. Like it, for me, psychology above technology in terms of how you get better at productivity, how you get clearer with yourself and how you work out uh, the best ways to spend your time. Um, so just a little bit about projects. Um, second one I want to talk about is um, what do we do with our phones? I think this is just an issue, right? Like, who's got some kind of smartphone device? Uh, who feels in some way addicted to their smartphone device? Uh, good, right. So, uh, welcome to Phones Anonymous uh, this evening. So, I think this is a huge deal. I, I didn't used to think it was as big a deal as it has become. So, I'm, I'm working on, uh, over the next few months, a uh, kind of rewrite of certain bits of the Productivity Ninja book to release the kind of 50 year anniversary of it. And when my publishers said to me, but you're going to rewrite the whole thing, right? I was like, well, no, you don't need to rewrite any of the stuff about how to define projects and actions. Like that stuff is the same for time and memorial. But the context of how we do our work has changed massively since I wrote the first draft of that book in 2012, right? So back in 2012, you didn't have Facebook Messenger. There was no WhatsApp. Uh, there was just a much like lesser sense of addiction, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people still didn't have uh, email on their phone, even in 2012, as weird as that sounds like. Um, so I feel like the world has really changed over the last few years. And I think the other thing that's changed within that is that there are people, and let's not beat around the bush here, there are people whose entire jobs in tech companies around the world, there are people whose entire jobs is to make these things more addictive and to engineer them to get as much of your attention as possible. Now, if you then carry that phone around with you and still think like you're going to do great work and assume that willpower is going to get you through, then that's totally naive. So I think we need to think about what we do with our phones. Um, I noticed this most when uh, last year I spent seven months out of work completely on a sabbatical. So I took a, a, a sort of decision for, uh, for basically nearly eight months, actually, um, to be completely unproductive to be completely idle, because uh, I thought that was the thing that I would find the most uncomfortable, and I was right uh, about that. But um, <clears throat> one of the things I really noticed when I went back to work was how much I had changed my behaviour and changed my psychology to fill in the gaps with my phone. Uh, there are also lots of things which are uh, sort of, in a very dark and weird way, uh, strangely addictive about what's going on in the world right now. So, like, you're on... Twitter and you're just going, Brexit, Trump, Brexit, Trump. And it's kind of like weirdly fascinating, isn't it? Even though it's like very scary. Uh, and so you get into this kind of mindset of checking, checking, checking and kind of wanting to know what the latest uh, bits of news or information are. And like, 
responding to all these notifications that come in. And if, have you noticed how things like WhatsApp, like the little green number of like flashing goodness in WhatsApp is basically the same, uh, you know, kind of thing that you get on the, the top of the little red glow on Facebook and all this bit like they're designing this stuff deliberately to be like really, really addictive. Um, willpower is just totally overrated. Um, if you think you're up against the smartest minds in the world trying to put your attention in. Uh, and I noticed that I was really struggling to, uh, to get my focus back when I got back to work because I was so used to this kind of uh, sense of, of how my phone was set up in that way. Um, so what I've done is um, I didn't, what I didn't want to do was what a lot of people have been writing about, which is I'm going to get rid of my smartphone completely and I'm going to get a Nokia 3210 and just play Snake. Ha, ha, ha. Like, so that's like a thing, right? You've probably read those in like The Guardian and stuff. Um, I, I, I said The Guardian, like I really hate The Guardian, which I don't. Then I just realised that, but it's fine. Um, so, so uh, yeah, what I didn't want to do was just ditch the smartphone completely. There are some useful um, things that a smartphone provides. Um, but what I did is I found an app. Um, there's an app for that uh, called Quality Time. And the idea of Quality Time is it basically, you can set up little um, uh, sort of time periods where it blocks certain things on your phone. Um, so for certain hours of the day, I have no access to Google Chrome. I have no access to Instagram. I have no access to Twitter. And all the things that just generally take up my time, they are unavailable. They are locked. They are behind the screen and I can't get to them. The only way I can get to them when that app is on is I can turn the app off, but it counts down for five minutes. So I have to wait an entire five minutes to give me Twitter like this, right? And the five minutes is usually enough for me to say, right, that was a bad idea. Uh, get back to focus, get back to what I'm doing. Um, so what I've done off, off the back of discovering this app and thinking about different modes was to think about basically three modes that I want to be in and uh, kind of spend my life in. So my three modes for living are basically create, and that's about doing all the creative stuff. So whether it's creating ideas, whether it's about creating words in a book, whether it's about uh, you know creating uh, good projects, the stuff that I need to be really heads down and focused on, that's my create time. And what I need for that is like uninterrupted focus, as little distraction as possible, just me and the computer or me and the pad and just like head down and work. And that's create. Um, then I have collaborate. So that's like, you know, uh, recognizing that there are other people in the world that I need to send emails to and uh, WhatsApp little voice things to and, you know, just generally collaborate with. So I have create and I have collaborate. Um, the third one, which was really about trying to bring some of the spirit of my sabbatical into the rest of my life, kind of keeping it in the rest of my life while I was working, is called chill. And I've realized that if you start to work on how you chill, if you start to work on how you relax, um, it actually gives you uh, like just a greater focus on that, rather than just working only on the work and then expecting with your least available energy sources at the end of the day to just do the chill bit really well. And it's like, actually, I think, you know, in terms of uh, focusing on the quality of my relaxation time, it's really helped to kind of think about this, this kind of three different modes. Um, how it works really practically for me, um, I think, by the way, it's different for how it would work for you. I think um, everybody's application of these three modes and everybody's application of how much time are you in create mode, how much time are you collaborating, how much are you in chill, I think really depends on the, the work that you do, how hard you want to work, whether you're running your own business, whether you can clock off at five, all these kind of different things. But broadly speaking, how mine works is the morning is all create time. Uh, I get up really early three days a week and not on the other two days a week. Uh, all of the morning is create time. I'm basically offline almost the entire, almost, I'm offline of pretty much almost everything 
pretty much until one o'clock, like every day, and certainly Monday to Wednesday. Um, the afternoon is collaborate, so like at, at about one thirty, my phone kind of opens up a bit, and it's like, oh, here is WhatsApp back with notifications, and oh, here is your podcast app. You can now listen to stuff again. And all these things reemerge on my phone, uh, and that's the collaborate thing in the afternoon. Uh, and then at five, it switches into chill mode. So my phone gives me kind of everything available, um, but I'm also very consciously trying to then uh, design and, and and kind of really concentrate on how am I going to chill, how am I going to relax, like how am I going to make the most of this time, and knowing that like actually if you want to be really productive for a long period of time, you have to really do the chill part really well. Like it's actually vital uh, to our happiness and to being good at what we do uh, to get the right kind of rest and the right kind of balance and the right kind of relaxation. That's kind of really key. Um, so for me, that's been my main approach of how to deal with phones. Um, I can talk much more about that. There's also a blog post. Uh, if you go to graymorecock.com forward slash my three modes, uh, you can read those more about that. Um, but just a couple of other things about phones. Um, if you can avoid having email on your phone, then don't have email on your phone. Just a really simple kind of hard and fast rule. Um, if you find that certain WhatsApp groups are I'm sure some of you do loads of these things already. Uh, if you have loads of WhatsApp groups that are really noisy, mute them uh, and don't be afraid to leave them as well. Uh, but just generally think about um, how that interface with your attention is going to work and what are you going to allow through the boundary of that. So are there certain things that you can just say, right, I'm going to delete this completely for a week and think about that? Or are there things that you can just mute the notifications and then just go in at your own time of choosing and when your attention is at that kind of right kind of stage? rather than just constantly having it interrupting you. There was a study uh, done a few years ago that uh, basically studied workers at Microsoft, and they were doing quite intense, um, you know, sort of brain concentration kind of tasks, and they sent them one-minute email interruptions. And what they found is a one-minute email, email interruption takes you 15 minutes to recover from. So 15 minutes to be like, okay, I'm off doing that, and then it's like, Okay, where was I? Oh, I was on chapter three. What was I writing about? What was I thinking about? To get yourself back in that mode takes you 15 minutes. So if you think every time your phone interrupts you like that, 15 minutes of productive time, like that's huge. Um, So we are facing a huge battle against technology and against our phones. And the battle ultimately is about whether these things remain and become really productive, useful tools for us or whether they start to actually program us and that sounds like uh, heavy language, but like go and look at the people who've left Facebook in the last five or 10 years, as in working at Facebook, and what they've got to say about some of that technology like it really is big. Um, so that's what we do with our phones. To some extent, there's loads more. Smash them. So another thing. Um, and then the final thing I want to talk about is uh, procrastination. Uh, by a show of hands uh, here, who procrastinates? Good. Congratulations. You've taken the first step, which is to, uh, to acknowledge your procrastination. Um, as I said at the beginning, I don't go in for the whole kind of guru uh, mentality with this stuff of like, hey, just do your work, just don't procrastinate, you know, this kind of guru mentality of things. Uh, and I think what makes productivity uh, and actually just humans at work a really fascinating uh, subject is that it's the human bit, right? It's the fact that humans have foibles and like we are all, like one of my catchphrases for a little while became people would say, right, Graham, you've interviewed. Uh, 50 or 60 of the most high-performing people around the world for an hour at a time, and you've got 50 or 60 hours of, uh, you know, amazing kind of insight into how some of the most amazing minds in the world work. What have you learned about humans? And my answer is just always like, 
humans are weird. Like, I just think humans are weird. And I think there's something really beautiful about that. And once you start to acknowledge, um, you know, human weirdness in general, and then your own human weirdness, and you start to own your own weirdness, uh, I think it's I think it's really powerful. Um, so let's talk about where some of that weirdness comes from with particular emphasis on procrastination. Okay, so you all have um, a part of your brain called the amygdala. So I've come across the amygdala before as a concept. So it's a bit at the back of your brain. Um, it's a very evolutionary uh, part of the brain uh, because it's the part of the brain that deals with fight or flight. It's the part of the brain that deals with adrenaline, uh, with uh, blending in and not standing out, being part of the tribe, hunger, reproduction, territory, like all the kind of most basic kind of human animalistic kind of instincts that we have all come from this very powerful part of the brain called the amygdala. Uh, it's a thing that Seth Godin, uh, who's a really interesting uh, business writer, uh, he coined it, uh, coined the term the lizard brain uh, to basically describe the amygdala. There's also another amazing book uh, called The Chimp Paradox. People come across The Chimp Paradox. Same kind of idea. It's the amygdala, the chimp is the amygdala, all that kind of thing. Um, so it's a part of the brain that because of its evolutionary function, um, it's a part of the brain that shouts the loudest. Okay, So when you're sat there and you're about to press send on that email that you know is going to just really explode the world um, or if you're sat there about to walk into the boardroom where you're going to give a big presentation or a big talk in front of 20 people who are going to judge the hell out of you uh, or whatever like when you're in those moments your lizard brain that part of your brain is just going don't do this you're going to stand out blend in find another way around this don't do this don't let me do this right so your brain is kind of giving you the signal of like this is something to avoid this is risky and I think what is really interesting about that is once you start to recognize that that is what your brain is doing, you can use the logical part of your brain that developed much later, the kind of frontal cortex, neofrontal cortex kind of stuff, to rationalize the hell out of that stuff and start to really quieten that, that voice of the lizard brain. And um, for me, the times where my lizard brain were most, was kind of most active, um, it's either when I'm doing stuff like this and getting up and, and talking, like it's just, it's a, real, it's a real annoyance to me is that like, over the years, I've kind of developed this thing where uh, I like I get paid a lot when I talk. That's like the main thing that earns me money, and it still terrifies the hell out of me. Um, and so I love, and I've learned kind of ways to quieten the lizard brain, but I love a way to just kick it into such just that one thing. That would be great. Uh, but that's something that it, I find really challenging. The other time when my lizard brain was at its most active was a couple of days before I sent off the first draft of my book, which was then going to go to, go to print as a self-published book. I spent an entire evening scrolling through every one-star Amazon review I could find of every other business book, and why the hell was I doing that, right? So why am I scrolling through all these books? And my little brain is telling me this story, which is something along the lines of, Graham, the book's going to be terrible, everyone's going to hate it, everyone's going to criticise it, all your existing clients are going to leave, you're never going to get another client, that means the business is going to, it's going to have no money, the business is going to go under, and you're going to move back in with your mum and be really sad and upset. <laughs> And so I followed this whole like narrative in my head, and then at, at, at a point, much later, realised, ah, that's the lizard brain. That's what that is. And you know, when you get into that kind of state of panic or anxiety about something that you're going to do, um, one of the things I'd really implore you to start adopting is recognising that that becomes your compass. Like, follow that stuff. Don't shy away from that stuff because usually the times where our lizard brain is most bleating at us to stop is the time where we're approaching some kind of boundary that we're going to push against. And it's, it's usually the times where we're going to make the most difference in the world. And it's usually the time, actually, that's going to create the biggest impact and make us 
you know, most famous in our work. Like, it's the time, you know, those are the points. When you look back on later, they're the things where your boss goes, that was a great thing you did, or the thing that really was the light bulb moment that kind of changed things. Anything that really pushes the boundaries is brave by its nature. And so you need that as a brain to help you get there. But you also need to, like, quieten the hell out of it at those moments to help make that stuff kind of happen. Um, so this brain, I think, is a huge... Um, it's been a huge... It was a huge revelation to me. And it's one of those things that really resonates with a lot of people when I do these talks, is they write to me afterwards and say, hey, you know, like this thing, I'm learning to dance with my lizard brain now or kind of really uh, start to develop a different relationship with that little lizard thing. Um, the other thing about procrastination is I have this little acronym which is designed to help you to... Uh, diagnose where your procrastination is coming from in the midst of your human weirdness. Uh, and it's dust, right? D-U-S-T. Um, so when you're procrastinating about anything, if you're sat there and you know you need to start something and you're not starting, uh, so think about whether you're not starting because the thing is difficult. And if the thing is difficult, what you need to do is break it down into smaller chunks so it's not difficult anymore. Or it's a skills issue and, and your next action is not actually to start on the thing, it's to go and get training or to go and get advice or to do something else. So once you know something is difficult and it's beyond your capability or you need to break it down, then you've got a different action to follow rather than the, the initial thing. Um, is it undefined? So again, do you need to break this down? Do you need to get clear about if this is an email or a call? Are you just unsure? Do you need to kind of work out and model somebody else who's done this better or differently and kind of and follow how they did it? So undefined, like really working out how to get that definition and get clarity in that how to start. Um, scary, that's lizard brain stuff, right? So if something's really scary, how do you overcome that fear? And the final one is tedious. Uh, that is people who iron their shirts while they're watching EastEnders. It's like, it's tedious, I'm going to do something else. Uh, and I tend to, you know, my thing with that is YouTube, right? Like I watch documentaries and other stuff and just kind of do my filing at the same time. Um, so difficult, undefined, scary, tedious. Um, my uh, sort of contention really with procrastination as a whole is once you recognize which of those four things it is, way more easier to solve. And if you can start to notice very quickly uh, when you're getting into procrastination mode, then you can start to diagnose it really quickly rather than spending the whole day tidying your desk. Or you, if you like, remember at school, you'd have like the cleanest bedroom ever just before the exam revision was due or the essay was due, like the same. So get in there early and do the diagnosis and that really helps. Um, so that is my three P's. What to do about projects, uh, what to do about procrastination, what to do about phones. Uh, but surprise, surprise, I have a fourth quick fire P. Uh, I'm very aware that sometimes I get very into conv- convoluted sort of high uh, ideas like the lizard brain and stuff, and I don't give you practical shit, right? So I'm going to give you some of that. Um, for this, my memory is really bad, so I have to give you quick, 10 quick fire practical things and then we're going to ask you to uh, get into pairs and talk about your productivity strength and weakness with the person next to you so think about something that you might want to change or something that might uh, be something that you're already really good at and this is what kind of really reminded you so here's 10 really quick five practical things and then I'm going to ask you to get into pairs first one turn off notifications we've kind of talked about this Um, really think about how stuff interrupts you uh, second one is have a mindless list. So keep a list and batch up all those little jobs uh, that you don't need your best attention to be able to do. So basically hold stuff back, keep stuff for four o'clock on a Thursday afternoon when you're really tired and then do that stuff then. And that frees up your time, frees up your mind for the stuff that needs more energy, needs more focus every week. Uh, third one, don't do emails first thing in the day. 
when the people most of, often do emails, it's usually when they, you know, they arrive at their desk and they open up their computer and they start looking at email. Or is it? These days, it's usually when you roll out of bed, you scroll through and you start looking at email. And what that does is it puts your mind immediately into everybody else's first priorities, not yours. So uh, start your day mindfully. Start your day with some, some quality thinking. Thinking is the hardest work there is. And you know, thinking is the stuff that is really valuable. Start the day with that and not with email. Uh, number four, don't multitask. Controversial. Uh, so monotasking, much better way of working. I uh, worked with this uh, woman a while ago who said, I'm really great at multitasking. Went back to her desk because I do like at-desk coaching and stuff. And uh, there, were, there were 19 open emails of different sort of half-finished emails on her screen in Outlook. And I was like, that doesn't look like multitasking. That, that looks like multi-not-finishing to me. Uh, and actually just rapidly refocusing from one thing to another is really tiring. Um, so just like monotasking, one thing at a time, uh, one thing on your desk at a time. So put the other stuff on your desk away while you're doing that one thing. Um, really great focus. Uh, be weapon savvy. Really think about how you use different tools, but also don't use too many of them. Like stick with really good tools and don't be at all um, distracted by the latest and loudest, cool, shiny, new tool thing, right? So keep to the stuff that you use really well, you know it really well, and, and it will help you uh, in that way. Number six, stealth and camouflage. Ninja stealth and camouflage. Um, this is basically about saying most of the advice I've given is difficult to achieve if you are in an open plan office and like you know someone keeps interrupting you every five minutes, going, "Have you got a minute?" Have you, got, you know, and like you're just totally interrupted the whole time. And um, so, if that is your world, if you are in an open plan office kind of thing, take some time to go and sit in the coffee shop around the corner or in the cupboard under the stairs or wherever you need to be. And if you need to, write something in your diary that says something like, meeting about Project Magenta. And Project Magenta doesn't exist, and because it doesn't exist, no one will ask you about it. So that's a good way of getting around that. Uh, number seven, get it all out of your head. It's amazing. We do this exercise with people where we get just basically brain dump, write down all the stuff that's kind of swimming around in your head. Um, you'd be amazed if you do that. Just take 20 minutes to just kind of get it all out of your head. All the gunk that's lurking up there, and also how much better and how much more clearly you can think once you get that stuff out of your head. So just do that. Um, say no to almost everything. There was a great Warren Buffett quote where he says something like, the difference between good people and great people is great people learn how to say no to almost everything. And I think this is so important for focus and so important for being aware and aligned around our priorities and around our purpose. Uh, so just get much, much better at saying no and learn to make saying no like a fun, interesting thing that you could do rather than just being scared about it because you're, you're lizard brain scared. Um, number nine, renegotiate regularly. I think often we fall into this trap of writing something on our to-do list and then we feel like we're committed to it and then three weeks later it still hasn't happened because there's actually much better things that we need to be doing. So coming back to that and just saying, actually, I thought it was a good idea. I'm really happy to hold my hands up and say, I'm human. I can't do this. This is not a thing that should be on my to-do list. And so go back and, you know, even though it's kind of going back on your word, like don't be afraid to have one three-minute difficult conversation rather than slave away for three or four hours and all that anxiety and procrastination that goes with it. Uh, and the final one is review regularly. Um, I do this thing um, which is basically a weekly review. So I go through all my different projects and spend some time going through my calendar. I look back in my calendar a couple of weeks, forward in my calendar three weeks. And what it does is it just gives me this amazing big picture view of everything that I'm working on. Um, it's usually the time where I have most of my best ideas is the times where I go, oh, you know, that thing, I could do that thing at the same time, kill two birds with one stone. It's the time where I make my best decisions, I think. 
Um, and just having that sort of discipline to take that step back, uh, and it's a little bit like that Buddhist monk um, saying, which is, uh, you should meditate for half an hour a day, except when you're busy, then you should meditate for an hour a day. Uh, and it's the same with thinking, right? Like when you're most under pressure, when you're most on deadlines, when you feel most stressed about your work, the biggest gift that you can give yourself and the thing that will make all of that much easier is just taking an hour away to just think and think in a structured way, think through everything that you're working on and just get really comfortable and in control uh, with what's on your plate. And once you do that, you develop this playful, productive momentum. And I think for me, all of this is about ultimately making space for what matters. I think uh, we need to really think about our thinking uh, much more than we do. We need to make space for that thinking and ultimately by doing that, we make space for the stuff that really adds value and helps to change the world. And that's a good thing. Um, so that's really what I want to say. Um, and I'm going to just invite you at this point to turn to the person next to you. And what we need to do is, um, and you can do this in threes if it's not obvious too, but um, just share with the person next to you one thing that you think you do really well around productivity. Because for me, what's really beautiful about productivity as a topic is that um, no one starts from zero in this game, right? So everybody has something to teach and everybody has something to learn with this topic. So what's the thing you do really well that you can share with the person next to you? And the other thing is share with them the thing that has most resonated from this talk because it's like, that's my weakness. That's the thing I'm going to change. That's the thing I'm going to do as a result of this. So basically, a strength and a weakness, turn to the person next to you and we'll give that about four or five minutes. Go! <laughs> I'm just going to speak for a few minutes around um, my sort of pet topic at the moment, which is Beyond Busy, and tell you about this uh, project that I've got on the called Beyond Busy. Uh, so I'm going to do that for about 10 minutes, and then we're going to have a break. Or we can have a break now, and then I'll do the Beyond Busy bit after break. Does anyone feel like they're having to hang in there for 10 minutes before? Yeah? yeah. yeah? Cool. All good. Right. So, um, Beyond Busy. This has become my sort of big passion and focus over the last couple of years. Um, I will start with full disclosure, which is it's also the thing I'm procrastinating about the most. Uh, and there's a very good reason for that, which I'll get on to. Um, and it's sort of the whole sort of topic of work-life balance uh, is something that's really intrigued me for a while and something that really grew out of the work around productivity. So I would often come across people who were, they became real kind of productivity ninja nuts, right? They, they bought the book and they've been on our workshops and they're like really into it and stuff. Um, and I think one of the side effects of doing that sometimes is you get so focused on the productivity part of it that you uh, don't necessarily uh, put enough focus on work-life balance and what you're doing outside of work and all the rest of it. And I don't think that's necessarily um, a, a sort of complete uh, sort of byproduct of, of what we do at Think Productive. I think there's kind of like a, a small element of the whole world of sort of productivity and self-development uh, advice, which can get a little bit kind of dangerous and toxic, but I think most people who use the stuff that's in my book use it in a really healthy way. And actually, a lot of people use the stuff in my book to define what the projects are in their home life and in their family life, and all these kind of other things as well. So I think actually, there's there's a really there's a lot to be said for uh, treating uh, you know every part of your life with the same kind of crystallized, clear thinking and rigor that you would your work life. I mean, why not, right? Uh, but for some people, it gets a bit too intense and they just get so stuck on this kind of hamster wheel of work. And so what I've started to think about over the last couple of years is how do I help people to get off the hamster wheel? 
And this feels like something that beyond the people who get far too into the idea of productivity, it's something that is just felt by a lot of people. I feel, I talk to people all the time who say, you know, I go to work, I just feel like there's no stopping. Like even when I'm on holiday, it takes me a week and a half of my two weeks to actually switch off and then I'm straight back and, you know, then you have Christmas and it's straight back into work. And it's like, people just feel like they're constantly on this treadmill. Uh, And one of the um, people I've interviewed for the podcast was Mark Williamson from Action for Happiness. Uh, He's the the director of uh, the organization based in in Netherlands. He talked about um, this idea of the hedonic treadmill. So this kind of idea of um, uh, of kind of gaining status and sort of gaining the next kind of shiny thing uh, and kind of continuing to work to, you know, to to buy the sort of fancy things to impress people that you don't like very much and all the rest of it. And, And I think for me, that's kind of one aspect of the hamster, right? It's like being on this kind of consumption treadmill uh, can be a really difficult thing. But actually just feeling like you're just, you know, constantly working and never really taking that time and space to, to relax and be you and, 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 and really kind of uh, own your own soul because you feel like, you know, you're kind of selling your soul to the job that you're doing and, and the stuff that you're doing all the time. And so I've just been really interested in this whole idea uh, about work-life balance over the last uh, couple of years uh, and how I help people to get off the hamster wheel. The reason it's a procrastinating... Uh, inducing uh, project for me is that to write a book about that, and I've got, I've got a deal in place to write a book called Beyond Busy, uh, which I first signed about a year and a half ago, and I still haven't written a word. Uh, my publishers are really nice about it, and uh, I'm doing another two books now before I get back on it. So I'm still writing it and researching it, but doing a couple of other books that I know are going to be much easier in the meantime. <laughs> Um, and uh, the reason it's difficult is because once you start talking about work-life balance and you start talking about how people define happiness and success and you talk about how those two things uh, interact with the idea of productivity you are basically talking about a book about the meaning of life and it feels like it's the most difficult thing to solve and it's also the reason I'm a massive fan of the work that actually happiness does because I feel like these are the kind of conversations that we don't have like we're constantly talking about who's going to be in Celebrity Big Brother and what Donald Trump's thing, like all these things and actually, you know, how we relate to each other as humans and like empathy and kindness and like all this stuff that Action for Happiness talks about for me um, is the stuff that happens when you get off the treadmill and I think it's really important to have lots more of those conversations. Um, so I've been doing this podcast over the last uh, couple of years. Uh, I've interviewed uh, a couple of the dragons from Dragonstone. I've interviewed an Olympic gold medalist. I've interviewed a uh, clown and a couple of comedians. Uh, people whose entire job and work is improvising. Uh, so just a whole range of different people who, dif- who, who do different jobs and really explore the tensions between work-life balance and how you define that, uh, happiness and success and how you define that, and productivity. And I think basically it's a triangle to me. And you have to have all three of those in some kind of flow to really get this. Like if you've really well-defined success and you've got really good productivity, you probably have a bad work-life balance. Uh, if you're really good at having work-life balance and you have really good productivity, you probably lack a little bit of meaning or a sense of purpose in, in what you're doing. So, you know, just having these things all in flow, having the sort of connections between those three big topics and kind of really working out getting to the bottom of what each of those, those three things means, um, I think it's, it's just a hugely uh, interesting and intriguing project for me. So Beyond Busy is all about that, how do we define those things? And ultimately the book will become... I think which is about how to inspire people and, and, and help people to get off the treadmill, whatever that means to you. I'm kind of exploring some different ideas for like what the treadmill really means and kind of different versions of the treadmill and stuff like that. Um, but what I did um, last year was I took uh, most of last year away from work and went on sabbatical 
um, and uh, made a very purposeful decision to do nothing for the best part of the year. This was one of the scariest things I've ever done in my life, right? Uh, I was the person who at the age of 13 had a six-day-a-week paper round and was doing, running a sort of car washing business on the side with two uh, similarly 13-year-old employees. Uh, and my entire life has been like that. Uh, and I think very deep-seated human weirdness comes from the fact that my parents didn't have any money and therefore I kind of have used work as a kind of uh, metaphor for security in lots of ways. That's been my kind of narrative around this stuff. Um, but I kind of learned two, uh, two things about my own narratives by spending the best part of a year on this sabbatical. Uh, so I'm just going to share those really quickly. So I'm calling this a little bit, um, whose narrative is it anyway? Um, so the first narrative was um, just this whole uh, thing about uh, confidence and self-worth coming from our work. Um, I noticed once I started to not have any work to do, I started to have some of the best business ideas I've ever had. Uh, a couple of them are still sat on my good ideas part and I'm waiting for the right time when I don't have a four-year-old uh, so I can come back to the work on them and you're not having them. They're really good business ideas. They're staying there, not telling you what they are. Um, but uh, as soon as I had these ideas, and started, I started to develop in my head this huge vision for what this business might look like and it was hugely exciting. My immediate next, my immediate next thought was, but Graham, you couldn't set up a business and you're no good at doing this stuff and how and you can't go into pitches and venture capital people and pitch this stuff and started to have all these really negative lizard brain thoughts about why I was so incapable of doing this thing. And then once you start to rationalise it, well I have built a business that's pretty successful and like I have done stuff that probably means it, you know I've got as good a shot as a lot of people. But I was totally unconfident about this. And um, it was something that um, I was sort of reminded of when I came back to work uh, by my colleague Elena who's here, who had exactly the same thing when she came back from maternity leave. And it's like, I just don't feel confident. Why is that? And I think there's so much of our identity is shaped by the drip drip of the little dopamine hits we get um, day in, day out, saying, oh, that was a good, thanks for that. That was a good idea. Cool, you did a good thing. And we get these little messages all the time about good stuff that happens in our work. And, and it gives us a sense of identity that actually we are good people because of the work that we do. And to me, that says there's something really important about how we find and develop and define identities outside of work, right? So how do I be a good dad? And how, do I be, how do I relate to my group of friends as a good friend? How do I have a good you know, environmental impact on the world? There's so many other ways that we can define those good narratives that's not about work, but actually it really kind of, it kind of threw me and affected my confidence quite a lot for a while. And then, and then I kind of realised why and that was, that was what's happening there. Um, the second thing about narratives I would say was um, something about just how um, your reality is not somebody else's reality. This is a little bit of a subtle one, but basically uh, in the month or two before I went back to work at the end of my sabbatical, uh, people, because people all the way through were saying, how was your sabbatical? Like the question was, you know, it's like, like when you meet the queen, right? So the queen must get asked the same three questions over and over again. And then like, she, she still manages to look like it's the first time anyone's ever asked her. But like, how was your sabbatical? And in the last month and a half, um, my answer sort of went from being, oh, it's really good, I'm doing gardening to it, and stuff like that, to being something along the lines of, yeah, but I don't think I've really solved it. <laughs> you know, like I don't really feel like I've cracked it. I don't really know what it was for. Uh, and I realised that what I was doing was I was starting to develop a whole narrative around my own guilt and me needing to walk back into the room in the office on the first day back and say this was for something, this was because of something, there was a reason for this. Uh, and actually, just being is a reason itself for anything, right? And so 
just the idea of having to have a narrative around that. And then it, once I start to get into the idea of actually most of my team, they're not seeking this narrative from me. Some of them have even forgotten what I look, or look, look, look like or who I am, right? But uh, in my mind, it was this uh, kind of sense of I need to provide the narrative and it was ultimately my own guilt. So I think sometimes that's a really useful reminder to all of us that, you know, uh, how we perceive ourselves and things that we uh, sort of wrap up in our own narratives is not how the world sees us or how other people see us. Uh, and ultimately, we're all an extra in somebody else's film, right? So I just think there's something really important about how we uh, use that to sort of tackle our own lizard brain and tackle our own weirdness. So that was my uh, whose narrative is it anyway. Um, the podcast is called, is called uh, Beyond Busy. You'll find that on the podcast feeds. Um, it's getbeyondbusy.com, and the link to that is in the meetup group as well. Uh, and my company is called Think Productive. We're based in Hove. So this is all a Brighton story, which is a cool thing. Uh, we're based in Hove, and we work all around the country and around the world, thinkproductive.co.uk. And I thought there's a fourth one on my list. Oh, Twitter. If you want, I'm someone who has my best questions to ask the speaker the next day. Right? I don't know why that is. So I just never think of a good question at the time. And the next day, I'm like, oh, I should have asked him that. So if that's you, I'm on Twitter. It's at Graham Alcott, but not in the mornings, only in the afternoons. Uh, but at Graham Alcott, I'd really love to connect with you and uh, share some of these thoughts and ideas and get your perspectives and answer your questions and all that stuff. Um, and the final thing I want to say is, um, I said at the beginning that it's not about how you manage time. Time is not your most precious resource. Attention is your most precious resource. So just thank you for giving me your attention um, over the last hour or so. Um, it's been a real thrill. Um, thank you very much. So I've done loads of talking already on this episode, obviously. So I'll keep my outro really short and just say thanks to Mark Stebman, my producer on the show. Thanks to Think Productive, the sponsors of the show. And if you want to check out more of what we do, thinkproductive.com, thinkproductive.co.uk here in the UK. And if you want show notes and links to previous episodes and you want to subscribe and you want more details on all that stuff, go to getbeyondbusy.com and you'll find all of that there and lots more besides. That's it. That's it. We'll be back in two weeks' time with another more uh, conventional episode with me talking to somebody. And until then, take care. Bye for now. (laughs) 